0: Welcome to Africa Insights, a podcast from New Lines magazine. I'm Kwangwuli In this episode, we look at the growing awareness of the impact of colonialism, which has recently pushed former colonial powers to come to terms with their past abuses. Since 2020, a significant shift has emerged in Africa's historical narrative. Former colonial powers have begun to acknowledge and apologize for atrocities and injustices committed during their rule. In a pivotal moment of recognition, Germany apologized to Namibia in 2021 for a dark chapter known as the Forgotten Genocide, where tens of thousands were killed by German soldiers over land seizures. The Germans carried out mass executions and exiled the Herero and Nama people to the desert where they died from dehydration while those imprisoned in concentration camps died of disease and exhaustion. In 2022, Belgium's King Philip confronted the legacy of his ancestors and expressed his deepest regret for the wounds inflicted on the descendants of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Germany and Britain continued with the momentum of recognizing past injustices in November 2023 by addressing colonial abuses in Kenya and Tanzania. However, on his official visit to Kenya, King Charles III fell short of offering an actual apology.
1: The wrongdoings of the past are a cause of the greatest sorrow and the deepest regret. There were abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans.
0: But why are these colonial powers owning up to their past at this particular point in time? To find out, I spoke to Salim Amin, who is a Kenyan producer and author of the book, Through My Father's Eyes. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Brooke Spector, a former U.S. diplomat in Africa and East Asia. He's currently the associate editor of the Daily Maverick, a South African online publication. Salim, welcome to Africa Insights.
2: It's a pleasure, Kwangu.
0: So let's start with Kenya. And can you explain where the basis for advocating for reparation stems from?
2: The reparations request or, or um, legal process started from, obviously from when the Mau Mau fighters uh, uh, were fighting for independence uh, against the British uh, Empire that, uh, that uh, was in charge of Kenya at the time. And the reparations are being asked for the brutality, brutal behavior and the brutality that was um, that was uh, 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 done against the Mau Mau by the British soldiers. Um, so I, I, that is where the basis of the reparations is coming from.
0: King Charles III recently visited Kenya and he did publicly acknowledge the past atrocities, but he fell short of apologizing. What was the reaction from the Kenyans?
2: Many Kenyans were glad that he had Said something and acknowledged the that that atrocities were committed. That um, colonial rule was far from perfect in any way. That there were a lot of things that were wrong with it. Um, so they were glad that they acknowledged that he acknowledged that. But I think many of them understood they wanted an apology. But many of them understood that they couldn't. He couldn't legally. I believe, do an apology because that would open up um, the, the the British government to a lot more, um, uh, I think, legal action against them. So I think that people did understand it. The, the Kenyan president, uh, uh, William Ruto, did push him for an apology and did emphasize in his speech following King Charles's that um, you know that that uh, Britain must apologize indeed all the colonial powers should apologize for the atrocities that they committed um, in this in their in their respective countries that they colonized
0: now morally, what is in an apology, and why is it so important?
2: An apology shows that you have acknowledged and accepted that something very wrong was done therefore you're apologizing, so I think in terms of of the um, of the country moving forward, of, of the, the, the Mao Mao fighters that are still uh, alive, the independence fighters that are still alive, for them being apologised to would vindicate some of the things that, that happened to them. But I think the apology also opens its doors to more legal action. So that from a purely, uh, from reparation point of view, an apology is very important. Now,
0: if you look at the descendants of the Mao Mao, um, what would you say are the ongoing consequences of these past abuses on the descendants who still live in Kenya?
2: I mean, there are varied um, repercussions from that. Some have managed to move on. We I've interviewed and talked to a number of of actual Mau, Mau fighters as well as their descendants. Um, some have uh, managed to move on and have have acknowledged that they're. Um, parents or grandparents were freedom fighters and heroes of this country and and they have they have uh, perhaps not even been told the full extent of the things that had happened to them but they have moved on many others have um you know demanded this legal route and are also not happy with the treatment that they got from the Kenyan government as well post independence many of them feel that they're, they they um, they didn't get what they deserved Uh, The land that they lost was never returned to them. Um, They were never properly looked after. And, um, you know, and and so there is a lot of bitterness, not just towards the British, but also towards um, subsequent Kenyan governments that didn't address some of the sacrifices that they made.
0: Now, um, when we hear about the Mau Mau, the first thing, this is for people who are non-Kenyan, is to think about um, the rebellion. Could you give us some background to the Mau Mau, are they a people? Is it a tribe? Culturally, who are they?
2: The Mau Mau was, was a group of, of, of freedom fighters that got together. Initially, they were, or the majority of them were made up of the Kikuyu tribe um, coming from the Mount Kenya region. But, uh, and it's kind of, it's a stereotype that all the Mau Mau were Kikuyus. They were not. There were many uh, Mau Mau fighters that were from many other tribes. And it was a movement to free... Kenya from colonialism to gain Kenya's independence. So they became almost a a guerrilla army, a rebel army that fought from the forests and from the mountains, um, and tried to, to make life very difficult for the British to force them to leave. So they, they targeted, um, the settler, the white settler community went after their farms, um, and uh, and that was that was what the movement was about. They had oath giving, so there was a lot of secrecy um and they their their goal was to was to you know get rid of the British or make the British leave kenya
0: yes, and another thing about them was they were portrayed to be um more savage and violent, and some thought they were actually a tribal cult and I'm asking all this because when you look at the cultural fabric of the Mau Mau. What are the consequences of that picture to their descendants today?
2: Um, I think their descendants are pretty sure about the the contribution that their uh, parents' grandparents made. I don't think that the stereotype that's been put out there, that they were a brutal terrorist uh, group is uh, holds weight with, the, with relatives or actual. Uh, veterans, they know what they did. They know why they did it. Yes, atrocities were committed um, by Mao Mau fighters, um, but I, you know, the more we learnt about what the British did, uh, those atrocities were very mild compared to some of the accounts of how uh, the British military, the British army, um, uh, treated and and tried to to uh, stop this rebellion and the things that they did to the Mau Mau's, obviously with far superior weapons and, um, and, and uh, military capabilities. So I think the descendants of the Mau Mau are pretty sure, and most Kenyans know the, the, the contribution that they made to, to independence.
0: So what exactly does the former colonial power, which in this case is Britain, um, owe the descendants of the Mau Mau?
2: Well, I think they're looking for you know for compensation monetary compensation is what they're looking for I'm not very um uh very uh, familiar with the, all the legal cases but I think they're looking for monetary compensation from the British government I think they were looking for a lot of their land and things like that back but that really is a Kenyan problem and needs to be addressed um by by Kenya as as a country um, but the, in terms of in terms of money um or financial reparations that they're looking for that from the UK. And there has been already been, I believe, one award at least of about twenty million pounds that's been that's been given to a group already.
0: So some experts are saying, you know, there's just a call for the financial compensation, but what about the other issues that could have been addressed um during colonialization, such as heritage, um language, all these things were affected, and culture identity as well. What are your thoughts
2: on that? I mean, the British way of ruling was divide and rule. So they, you know, wanted to make sure that the fabric of Kenyan society was torn apart because if... Because before they came along, there was quite a united. Sure, there were tribal conflicts that went back centuries, um, and and internal conflicts over land or cattle or or livestock or whatever it was. But the British came and and really um, put their divide and rule policy in place and and separated you know people tribes. Um, yeah, even people that were intermarried and that and, and they made sure that they, they, they sowed those seeds of discontent, which unfortunately are still going on in this country.
0: And what makes for this hope of reparations from the Kenyan point of view?
2: I think they'll have to follow the legal process as best as they can. I don't think that um, anyone is going to come forward and, uh, and um, offer them Something I think they 'll have to follow a legal process, and if they win it, then they 'll do that. I mean one of the other things that Kenya really has been pushing for, and we hope that king charles 's visit you know will will have spurred a little bit of that on was the return of all of our um, archives of much of our archives that were taken away um, by the British when they left so in those archives what 's important about them is there is there are, there will be accounts quite detailed accounts of what happened to during that time which i believe are vital um and 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 very important for us to have as part of our history but also to try and you know sort out some of this this talk of reparations and apologies um and and events that happened which are still uh, vague because there's no written record and the british probably to their detriment now um were ex- excellent record keepers they 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 kept amazing records. So that, I think, is coming back to bite them a little bit now. Um, but if if Kenya can get some of that, um, it will bring some closure if we can get some of that back. For example, we don't know where Dedan Kimathi, who was you know one of the great freedom fighters of this country, we have no idea where he was buried. People have been looking for his grave, and I can't believe that the colonial administration that was so meticulous in its record-keeping would not have had an exact record of where they buried uh, Kimathi after he was hung.
0: Now, what happens when these objects are returned? Um, Do you have suitable places to house them? And I ask this because in other countries where um, these objects have been returned, for instance, um, the Benin bronzes, some have been returned in Nigeria – And we've seen that they haven't yet been placed in um, certain museums, for instance, because they're not ready to have them. What's the situation like in Kenya?
2: Well, Kenya has a a good number of museums, but um, about uh, three years ago, the former president, Uhuru Kenyatta, initiated a project to create a massive museum, to build a massive museum at uh, a place called Uhuru Gardens, which was the spot where... Um, Kenya was granted its independence, where Prince Philip handed over the instruments of independence to Jomo Kenyatta in 1963, and that spot had been lying, kind of, you know, um, kind of derelict for a long time. Um, and he wanted to build it, build this new museum that would showcase the history of Kenya. Uh, good, bad, and ugly were his words. You know, we must show everything, and um, and so that. Began that project began and and over twenty two months they constructed a, a massive museum was constructed uh, um, and the galleries are still being worked on it's not open to the public yet but we're hoping that with, there was a bit of a delay when when um, when the change you know the new president uh, the new government came in and the new president came in and you know financing has been a bit difficult. Um, since that time. But this museum is is incredible. It sits on 70 acres. Um, It's uh, got 35 galleries. It's got, you know, also um, state-of-the-art facility to house uh, artifacts, to house documents. There's a massive archiving facility, digital archiving facility, as part of it. Um, You know, they're digitizing a lot of the... Um, the content from the Kenya National Archives, from the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation, uh, and trying to preserve as much of that as possible, and um, and I think it's just it's absolutely brilliant. So uh, we're hoping that this is where where all these artifacts will come back to, the, the legendary man eaters of Savo, the lions. Um, sit in Chicago, in, in a museum in Chicago. So, again, those are things that we want to bring back in regards to the Mau Mau uh, history. Um, for example, they found all the nooses that were used to hang uh, Mau Mau fighters um, in one of the prisons here, and um, almost 1,100 of them. So, they're creating a gallery that will be called the Rope Gallery so we can, the tribute can be paid. But also people can understand what happened to and then how how difficult a period it was for this country's history. Thank you, Salim. Very welcome.
0: Now at the heart of the reparations debate lie questions about the beneficiaries, mode of payment, and just how far back compensation should go. Brooke Specter shed more light on this. So, why has this issue of acknowledging, apologizing, and reparations from former colonial powers for past atrocities come up in recent years?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is a is a fairly simple one of uh, a a a more universalized sense of dealing with past injustices. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, slavery and colonialism were clearly, unfair practices at the minimum uh, and the need for recognizing human rights abuses, uh, both on an individual basis and a communal and then ultimately a national basis, has become a more common currency in world affairs. If that's true, then it was probably inevitable for the question of uh, reparations to become part of the of the international discussion. Uh, now, having said that, uh, the question of who is responsible for paying and who is likely to receive, and who is uh, how are you going to distribute uh, such payments? All of those are enormously more difficult discussions. Um, I mean, I've. I, i've I've racked my brain over this for a while, and there are only really two good, solid examples of reparations in this sense that I can find that worked. And I think the reason why they worked was because it was payments to individuals who had been adversely affected. And the one, of course, was the payment uh, to Japanese Americans or Japanese, citizens who were resident in America during World War II, who were uh, extracted from their homes and sent to uh, internment camps, uh, hundreds, even thousands of miles in some cases, from their homes. And the repayment and the recognition of that uh, didn't come until the 1980s. But again, that was to named individuals rather than a country transfer to another country uh, without real sense how such resources would be distributed and why they would go to this place or this person as opposed to that place or another person. And I I think there's another part to this, which is uh, not often discussed, but the question of colonization and its uh, attendant horror of slavery it wasn't simply a question of several Western European nations. There was a complicity on the part of any number of African leaders in the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, as well as a large number of slaves and exploitation that took place from the east coast of Africa by way of uh, the Omani sultanates, which had trading and slaving ports all along the east coast of Africa, uh, and that very those two latter circumstances are very rarely discussed. the The last part of it is, I think, the question of if you open the door to reparations or repayments for colonization, stroke slavery, then the legal liability in the countries affected uh, is almost endless. And how is that going to be adjudicated and apportioned? There's very little precedent for something like that.
0: Picking up on that point about precedence, um, we've seen that there's also been a reluctance by former colonial powers to actually apologize. I guess acknowledgement and apology would be the first two steps to take. And if we take a recent example, of King Charles III's visit to Kenya recently, I mean, he did acknowledge Kenya's colonial era of suffering, but it fell short of apologizing. Why are they tiptoeing around this apology? Is it for fear of um, setting a precedence? If they did apologize, meaning following apology would be a discussion on reparations.
1: Well, as I say, I think the question be- it begins to de- to devolve to the question of legal liability. Uh, in in the case you cite. Uh, uh, Charles III's uh, visit to Kenya, um, it wasn't, to the best of my memory, it wasn't a broad stroke uh, apology for all of aspects of the colonization of Kenya. It was, uh, I think it was rather, it was drawn rather more narrowly to the, uh, the way in which um, the British military and, and uh, K- Kenyan police dealt with the Mau Mau insurrection in the 1950s and uh, events at that time. So it it, it didn't retrospectively reach back to the early 1900s, for example. But again, the moment you open that door, then uh, clever lawyers in the former colonizing countries and the formerly colonized countries, uh, clever lawyers are going to have uh, an open door to litigation and who exactly do you do you blame precisely and whom do you sue uh, there's another example which I, I'll offer to you um, which I've, I spent a little time thinking about because I spent a lot of time in Indonesia um, the Dutch uh, government apologized in a fashion for its treatment of subject people's in Suriname, which is on the northeastern coast of South America. But you'll notice that that apology did not extend to the people who were taken uh, forcibly from the then Dutch East Indies to South, what became South Africa. And it wasn't a blanket apology for the way in which the Dutch handled uh, the Indonesian islands for over 300 years or thereabouts. Uh, and so people are are trying to they're trying to thread a whole series of of needles with with this question of apologies. And the moment, as I said, the moment you open the door to an apology, then the next question is inevitably. And so what are you going to do to make it up for us?
0: Okay, so just um, picking up on reparations. If we look at the incident that happened in um, Namibia with um the genocide and Germany actually apologizing and um, entering a deal with the Namibian government. But they didn't call that reparations. They deliberately called it, um, it was some aid given to the country, running away from terming it as reparations. And the communities that were affected um, by this genocide were not even involved in these negotiations. What are your thoughts on involving the community in these negotiations and discussions? How important is it?
1: That was an interesting case. They did not use, the Germans did not use the same set of uh, regulatory questions or legal precedent that were brought to bear uh, for their response, the German responsibility uh, it, for World War II. Uh, I, I think, in part, uh, because there was, I, I, I'm guessing on this, I'm not sure, but I think there was. There was some disagreement within Namibia as to whether or not the government would receive uh, the funds and the apology attached to it, or whether it would be it would begin to be dispersed to the various ethnicities in Namibia uh, and therefore individuals who might be the descendants of people because uh, that particular uh, harsh treatment uh, ended uh, at least under Germany. Uh, In 1918, and it ran from the end of the 19th century. So for say 20 to 25 years, whether or not individuals can be traced now whose families were the uh, the the recipient of 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 ill treatment and worse, I don't know, and I don't know whether records were kept. And that that may be terribly unfortunate. there are some people of course who argue that the the german uh, behavior in the in in namibia what was then southwest africa uh, was, was kind of a dry run for what what would happen during world war 2 and uh, the governor general of namibia at the times last name was a mr goring who just happened to have been the father of a mr goring who was high up in the nazi fraternity during world war 2 so uh You know, you have to wonder about these things. Um, Whether the Namibian government was prepared to share uh, the monetary recompense uh, to individuals is a different kind of question too.
0: Just broadly looking at these efforts being made by um, these former colonial powers to acknowledge um, these atrocities and also some apologize while others don't. Are they genuinely aiming at... Reconciliation and healing because some people think um, this is just being done to maintain influence and countering geopolitical issues on the continent and influences from countries like russia and china
1: well i 'm sure it's a complicated mix of all those things uh, i mean it's not it's certainly not pure uh, real politic behavior and it's certainly not pure altruism either in this discussion you very rarely hear the name Belgium either of course, and the the, the way in which um, King Leopold's uh, government, before it was actually a colony, when it was the so-called Congo Free State, uh, a kind of a private reserve held uh, by the by the royal family, uh, that was some of the more barbaric versions of, uh, quote-unquote, colonial behavior uh, Africa had ever seen. And, uh, you know, punishment for... Failing to provide sufficient rubber crops, you know, get your hand lopped off quite seriously. Um, and you don't see Belgium discussed in this way. You don't. You don't see Portugal discussed in this way. And the atrocities of Portuguese rule in Mozambique, Angola, and uh, Portuguese then Portuguese Guinea. Uh, some of them were 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 pretty brutal. Um, villages burned, people moved. Uh, whether they wanted to or not, people uh, forced into Corvée labor uh, and various other forms of extractive enterprise. Uh, So far, at least, it seems that much of the discussion focuses on Britain and France and to some degree Germany. Uh, And that pretty much covers the landscape until the Dutch uh, came up with their sort of very modified version of an apology. Uh, And... This is going to take a long time to play out. Uh, and I guess one other question that you, you we really need to leave on the table, how far back uh, should this kind of reparations discussion uh, reach? Uh, is there an arbitrary cutoff? Uh, does it include the Turks and the Ottoman Empire? Does it include um, Egypt and its behavior in the Sudan uh, does it include uh, the expansion of Ethiopia in the late 19th century? I mean, All of these questions are very awkward and complicated, and I, I don't think anybody has done much in the way of answering any of it. Mm.
0: And in your opinion, um, are the living responsible or accountable for the actions of their descendants?
1: Well, I mean, if you take the biblical injunction that you know that you you don't visit upon the children uh, punishment for their parents, no. But on the other hand, if you live in a society and that society uh, behaved egregiously badly against another society, then uh, perhaps you do. Um, and all of this. Uh, it, that there are moral questions here and there are legal, international legal ones and they're, they're awkwardly intertwined. Um, as as I, I go back to my original point about the Japanese-Americans, um, we had a friend in Japan who was actually an American, Japanese-American who'd moved to Japan uh, for family reasons. And in the mid-1980s, she actually received a check uh, which was part of the larger process of, of reparations given to the, uh, the Japanese American citizens or resident, uh, permanent residents or their, their children. And she was eligible, she received the check, and she debated whether or not she should cash it. And I said, oh, goodness sake, you earned it through, you know, what happened to you and your family. Cash the check, make a photocopy, and frame the photocopy.
0: Suleiman Brook, thank you very much for your insights. This week's podcast was produced by Patrick Hagen and hosted by me, Kwang Wuliwewe. For more, visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thanks for listening in.